For those of you who have been coming for the last couple of weeks, well done. That's a good way to do church, I think. But um, we've been in a series for the last two to three weeks on love. It's been a bit of a casual series. Sometimes we do series where it's, it's really obvious that it's a series, and sometimes we just kind of take a, a theme and run with it. And you might have seen, we've got, em, can you pass me the connection card? We've got these connection cards, and they, you might have wondered what's going on with the dude writing with like shackles on his wrists, right? I don't know if we've explained this yet. This is Paul. This is a, an illustration of Paul, and it's him writing 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Which for those of you who are have ever been to a wedding, you probably heard it once, right? It's the, it's the scripture, love is patient, love is kind, love is da-da-da-da-da, and goes and goes and goes, right? And, and so we're looking at this idea of what is love, right? Whenever I say that, I want to say, what's love got to do with it? But I won't, right? I had an awesome preamble to Does anyone know The Princess Bride, the movie The Princess Bride? Favorite movie ever. We'll talk about that tonight. Don't have time today, right? But, but love is awesome. Oh, man, I actually just have so many, love is a many splendid thing, love lifts us up. Stop it. Stop it, right? But really stop it. I've got a lot of notes and we need to get through them, right? But today I want to talk about love and I want, I want to look at probably the one passage you didn't think we were going to look at today. The one love story that you thought, that's probably not a great story to preach of from love. I want us to turn to, to Genesis chapter 29 and we're going to start in verse 15. And we're reading from the NLT translation and we have it here. This is our... Um, our replacement for actual real presentation software. I said, where's the OHP? Apparently we threw it away, right? I don't know, because then we could have done finger puppets and stuff. It would have been fantastic. But we're going to go through this. Uh, so read along with me. I'm going to read from here or else I'll get confused. Uh, and we're going 15 to 35. It's going to be a fun journey. So, so buckle in. It says this, Laban said to him, this is Jacob he's talking to. We'll explain it. Don't worry. You shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eye, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban said. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my, arrange, uh, my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Pretty direct. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It is not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant girl, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He stayed and worked for Laban an additional seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. 
She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and gave me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Weird scripture to preach about love from, right? Also a little bit of an uncomfortable scripture. Who here has ever tried to buy a wife? (laughs) It's a bit of a frowned upon practice. Who here has ever married one sister and then said to the dad, actually, I wanted the other sister, right? Again, not so much of something that we're doing in modern day society. But but today I want to look at this scripture and look at this story and see what does it tell us about true love, right? But before we do that, let's pray because who knows, this could get all sorts of messy. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Uh, God, I thank you that we get to come uh, into your house, that we get to, to gather together and we get to lift up your name, God. And we thank you for, um, for your protection over us, God, for your blessing on us, God, that, um, oh God, we just pray for, for everyone in New Zealand who's been affected by these floods and these storms, God. We pray that you would just protect them, that you'd look after them, that you'd watch over them, God. And we're aware, Lord, that, that what we're going through pales in comparison to other things that are going on in the world. And God, today we just want to, Uh, turn our attention, turn our hearts to the fact that we are so blessed to live in a nation where we are uh, comfortable, God, where we're not persecuted, Lord, where the the ground isn't trembling beneath our feet, God. And so today we just pray that, that you would speak to us, God, that we wouldn't be distracted by our comfort, that we wouldn't be distracted by the fact that, that we had a warm breakfast and, and a safe house and that we could come in here and, and our cars and everything was fine, God. We pray that we would still seek you earnestly, God. We would seek you with the passion that, that others in the world that are being persecuted, that are being knocked down might. God, I pray that, that my words wouldn't um, come to the front today, but that you would speak through me, God, that, that what you want to say would come to the front, Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. See, um, I think it's an interesting story, right? And it's simultaneously pretty disturbing. Um, and, and if we have time, we'll go into why it's disturbing. If we don't, we can just talk about it afterwards. If you're like, Jono, I really did not enjoy that scripture. Seems really primitive and horrible to me. We can talk about it later. I've got a whole thing about it, right? But it won't fit here. But the thing is, is that in this account of Jacob's search for his one true love, we see, we see three things, three things that I want to point out and that I think really help us in terms of how we can understand love. The first thing is, is the overpowering human drive to find true love, right? That need to find someone who completes you, that need to find something in some cases that completes you, that need for, for relationship, that way that we define ourselves by the people we can surround ourselves with or the things that we can have, that we need to, to place our love on something. The second thing I want to look at today is, is the, the disillusionment, the disappointment that so ordinarily accompanies that search for true love. The falling short that that so often happens when we're trying to find something that we can love, that we can place our love in. And thirdly, what we can do about this whole mess. What can we do about our need for true love and our disappointment with our our chase after it? How can we we fix the ache that we have in our hearts for love? What what will fulfill it? Right, so I want to start by looking at this human drive for love. Right, we start with with Laban in the story, says to Jacob, You shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Right, let me give you a quick backstory to this. Basically, what's going on is two generations earlier, God has come to Abraham and he said to Abraham, who's Jacob's grandfather, I will make you extremely fruitful. We actually might have this. It's Genesis chapter 17. 
Boom, boom. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and God of your descendants after you. That's it. It finishes there at six to seven, right? But so here, here's God talking to Abraham, and he's saying, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a covenant that, that I'm going to walk with you, that you're going to be someone special. And in this covenant, an idea is birthed called the Messianic line, right? We're not going to get too heavy in theology, but we will dabble today, right? But see, what the Messianic line is, is it's God promising not just that, that he will bless Abraham's family, but he's promising that he will bless all of the world through Abraham's family. That Abraham's family is, is going to bring something special into the world. So you might not realize, but Abraham is Jesus' great times 40 grandfather, right? So like great, 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 great. We won't do all of it, but a lot of greats, grandfather. And, and, and what's happening here is Abraham's son was Isaac. And so Isaac was the first in the Messianic line, the first person who's, who's, going, to, who's going to inherit this line that through him, the king will come. Through him, the savior will come. Through him, something special is gonna happen in the world. And so what happens is, is when Isaac's wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant with twins, God speaks to Rebecca and he says to her, the elder will serve the younger, right? The elder is gonna serve the younger, which means that the second twin, the second twin to be born will be the chosen one. He's going to be the one to carry on the messianic line. He will be Jesus' 38th grandfather, right? And so what happens is, is Esau is born first, right? Esau is the first son of Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob is born. But in spite of this prophecy, in spite of the word that God has spoken to Rebekah, Isaac doesn't see it that way. See, in, in, in Old Testament times, there's this idea called primogenitor. Which means basically your firstborn son is way more important than anyone else. And so he turns to Esau and he says, you will be the one who inherits the Messianic line. I don't care what Rebecca thinks she heard from God. I'm going to put all of my blessing on you. And what happens is his family is divided because Esau grows up thinking that he is the man. He grows up thinking that he is infallible, thinking that, that he is, he's going to rule it all. And Jacob grows up bitter and rejected, and resentful, and turns into a schemer. And so what happens is, when it's time for Isaac to pass on his blessing, to pass on the messianic line, to, to confer his blessing onto his son, who he plans to be Esau, Jacob comes in, and he tricks him, and he steals the blessing. So here we are. Jacob has stolen the blessing. Esau finds out, and Esau says, all right, I have a solution. I'm simply going to kill you. I will take your life, then you can't continue the messianic line, it will fall to me. So here we are, everything has been ruined, right? Jacob is scheming and trying to steal this blessing to, to be the ruler of his family, but now he has to flee to the other side of the country because his brother wants to kill him. Now he's in this position where everything that he schemed and lied and planned to get is out of his reach. And so he goes to the other side of the Fertile Crescent, which is this place that they're living, and he has to live with his mother's brother, right? He's with his uncle. And so there he is, and this is where we pick up. This is where we pick up where his uncle Laban says to him, you can't work for me for nothing just because we're relatives, right? What can I pay you to have you working for me? What can I pay you to have you keep on 
looking after my flocks because he realizes that Jacob is super good at managing sheep, right? And if Jacob keeps on managing his sheep, he's going to end up a rich, rich man. So here we are. This is how we get to this question. How much can I pay you to be in charge of my flocks? And Jacob's answer is basically one word, Rachel. Right, he wanted Rachel as his bride, and he was willing to work seven years for her. And what do we know about Rachel? The text comes right out and says that Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Right, and so Jacob is over the top, intensely lovesick and infatuated with Rachel. And it's weird, right? Let's be honest. It's not like a, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Jacob. We fell in love. It's like, a, I saw you across the room, and you don't know me, but you're going to be my wife, and I will do anything to make that happen. Right, it's, it's an intense, kind of weird, pretty frowned upon now, hopefully, type of love. And so what happens is he loves her, and, he, and the text says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had. Right, I don't know about you, but I've never worked for seven years, and it seemed like a few days. I worked for a couple of months, and it seems like seven years, right? Jacob has got a crazy love going on. And so he loves her, and in the next verse it says, Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so that I can sleep with her. And see, this statement is so blunt, so, so over the top, so, so graphic and inappropriate and non-customary that, that over the centuries, Jewish scholars have been doing all sorts of backpedaling to try and explain it. Right, this is not the way you talk in Jewish culture. You do not say, give me my wife so I may sleep with her. That is far too forward. No one says that. But what's going on here is the narrator is showing us that this is a man driven by an overwhelming emotional and physical longing for one woman. Right, that this man, his life is empty. His whole life, he's growing up not being loved by the one person he wishes would love him not being validated by the one person he wishes would validate him, being second to his brother, always coming second, always being valued less. And so he schemes to try and put himself first, to try and find love, and it all falls apart. He has less than he started with. Now he doesn't even have a family. So he's across in this other country, surrounded by people he doesn't know, and he sees a girl. And he looks at that girl and he says, man, if I could have her, if she could be my wife, my life would be all right. If I could be married to her, if she could be my wife, everything that's gone wrong wouldn't be wrong anymore. If I was her husband, I'd have a purpose. If I was her husband, I'd have a reason for drawing breath. If I was her husband, finally my lousy life would have some sort of meaning. See, he never had his father's love, and now he doesn't even have his mother's love because He's not with her, and he certainly has no idea, no concept of God's love. He has lost everything, no family, no inheritance, nothing. And so he says, if I found this one true love, if I found this love, everything would finally be okay. He says all of the, all of the longings of his heart for significance, for security, for meaning, all of those longings, he had, he had no other object for them, nowhere else to put them. And so he puts them on Rachel. He says, Rachel, if you were my wife, I would mean something. If you were my wife, I would feel worth something. If you were my wife, this ache in my heart would maybe go away. See, Jacob was, was somewhat unusual for his time. 
you didn't marry for love in those times. You married for status. And, and so here he is. He's marrying for love. But that's not a rare thing today. Right? Today, we, we find it weird when people marry for any other reason but love. But, but what's happening here is, is there's an author called Ernest Becker. And I, oh, it's nice and high. He won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1970s for a book called The Denial of Death. And in this book, he talks about how people deal with the fact that they don't believe in God. Right, his whole book, he's an atheist, and his whole book is about how does a secular culture deal with the lack of God in their life, which is an interesting thing for an atheist to write about. And he says this, he says that one of the main ways that secular culture has dealt with the God vacuum is through an idea that he coins called apocalyptic romance. That our secular culture has loaded its desire for transcendence, loaded its desire for something more, for something bigger than what's right in front of them into romance and into love. To put it bluntly, Ernest Becker is saying that we make our partner or our desire for a partner or our family or our desire for a family, we make something that we can love our God, right? We've stopped believing in G-O-D. We've stopped believing in the big God who looks after us, who walks with us. And so we find something else and we say, you, you will be my God. We find a partner and we say, you, you will complete me the way that my, my forefathers looked to God to complete them. You will be my God. Romance and love and this idea will be my God. After all, what is it we so often want from our partner? What is it that society tells us that our partner will give us? It tells us that, that in our partner we will be rid of our faults. We'll be rid of our feeling of nothingness. That, that in our partner we will be justified. That in our partner we will be complete. That in our partner we will be made happy and whole. That man, to be happy, all you need to do is find the right person, get married, buy a house, and whittle away the rest of your days paying off your mortgage. That that is the way to be happy. That that is the way to find satisfaction. And that's not a bad thing to do. But we end up in a place as a culture where we go through midlife crises, where we, we find that we're lacking something because we finally get the thing that we've been looking for all this time. We finally attain the goal that we've been chasing, and the ache is still there. And it's so confusing. See, this is exactly what Jacob did. And this is what people all over the place are doing. This is what I know that I so often do. This is what our culture is begging us to do. To load all of the deepest needs of our hearts for significance, for security, onto something more, into, for, for something more into romance and into love. And finding that one true Love. See, the human longing for true love has always been around. But in our culture now, it has been magnified to an astounding degree. See, so where does this lead, right? If we need love, if culture is telling us that, that love is the way that we can define ourselves, that love is the way that we can be made whole, that love is the divine aspiration, that love is God, what happens? See, my second point this morning is the disillusionment of love, the disappointment of love. See, here we are, Laban knew that Jacob loved Rachel, right? Laban knew that, that Jacob had offered to serve seven years for Rachel. And at that time, if you wanted to, to marry someone, you'd pay the father a bride price. Again, not a great thing to do, right? We're not, I'm not condoning, hey, if you're looking to marry someone, go to their father and offer to, to buy their, their daughter, regardless of how the daughter feels. Not, not a great idea, but this is how things were done. And so there they are, they're offering to pay the father a bride price, and it was somewhere around 30 to 45 shekels. 
all you need to know about shekels is it was the currency and it sounds funny, right? But here they are, they're offering to pay 30 to 45 shekels. And in those days, a month's wages was equal to one and a half shekels. Are you following me? Right? So if you're offering to pay 30 to 45 shekels, that is at most like four years work, right? That, that you would be overpaying. And so here, Jacob is, he's come straight out of the gate, straight out of the box in this bargaining arrangement. Hey, Laban, I would like to pay you seven years of wages for your daughter. Right, Laban has, has realized this guy is crazy in love. This guy is infatuated. This guy has oversold himself already, right? Like he's bartered way too high. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like bid on something on Trade Me? You're like, that chair is worth $200 and it arrives and you're like, that chair was not worth $200. I paid far too much, right? But here he is, he's offering a lot more than anyone else would. He's a horrible bargainer. And Laban knew that he had him. He knew that this man was vulnerable. And Laban immediately came up with a plan, realizing that he could get even more out of this deal. He says, it says, sorry, since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter is my wife. Laban responds, agreed. I'd give, rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. And then seven years pass and Jacob says, give me my wife. And as is customary, there's a feast because that's what you do when you get married. You have a party, you celebrate with people. So there's a big feast. And in the middle of the feast, the bride is brought forth, but she's heavily veiled. Like you guys might have been to a wedding. Most people have been to a wedding. And the bride's got like a pretty little veil on her face, right? You can still tell that it's her. You're not going to marry anyone else by accident, which is good. But in, in Jewish custom, you could not tell who was under the veil, right? She was heavily veiled. And in the middle of the feast, she's brought out. And then they go into a tent, which is very awkward, but still how they did things, right? And so they go to this tent to know each other biblically, right? And, and, and Jacob, as is customary, is heavily intoxicated, right? Because you've been partying for a long time and people drunk a lot back then. Thank goodness things have changed now, right? <laughs> That's a good joke. Right, and so there they are. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. She was veiled when he could see her. Now he's drunk. It's the middle of the night, and they know each other biblically. And then he wakes up in the morning, rolls over, and it says in some translations, it's beautiful. It says, behold, in the morning it was Leah. Right, which is pretty mean to Leah. We're going to get into Leah in a minute. I like Leah, so, so don't be like, I'm going to fight you if you mock Leah, right? But here he is. He rolls over, and it's Leah. And Jacob looked and discovered that he had married Leah and he had consummated the marriage with Leah. And Jacob, rightfully angry, goes to Laban and says, why have you done this to me? Right? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replies, and this is awesome. Laban replies, I actually just lost where I was. Laban replied that it is customary for the older girl to be married before the younger girl. See, I don't know about you, but for a long time I read this bit, and I was like, what, what is Jacob doing? Like, he goes in all mad, right? He's like, what have you done? Why have you betrayed me, right? Why have you deceived me? And Laban's like, well, it's customary for the older girl to marry a younger girl. And, Laban, and then Jacob's like, okay, I'll work another seven years, and just walks out. It seems like we, we know Jacob's a bad bargainer, but it seems like a, a weird thing for anyone to do, to have been so deceived, so tricked, and then to roll over so quickly. But see, what we don't know, I was reading through this, and, and I, I came to, um, to a sermon by Timothy Keller. For those of you who don't know Timothy Keller, Google him. He's written some great books. Um, he's an awesome preacher. But, but he explains it like this. He says that what Laban literally said is it is not the custom here 
to put the younger before the older. Right, see, what's going on is then Jacob says to him, why have you deceived me? And the word translated deceived is the same Hebrew word that was used in chapter 27 to describe what Jacob did to his father, Isaac. See, it must have occurred to Jacob that Laban had only done to him what he had done to his father. See, in the dark, he thought that he was touching Rachel and his father in the darkness of his blindness thought that he was touching Esau. See, what Jacob had done to his father had come back round to bite him, right? What goes around had come back around. And when, when Labam said, it is not the custom here to put the younger before the older, I bet you the first thing that Jacob jumped into Jacob's mind was, I put myself before my older brother Esau, right? It is not the custom to deceive like I did. Labam calls him out on the one thing that would break him. Right, the one thing that would hurt him. And so that is why he essentially rolls over. He says, all right, I'll serve another seven years. So here is Jacob, and he says, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be okay. If I can just find this girl, this one true love, then everything in my life will work out. She will complete me. And he goes to bed with someone who he thinks is Rachel. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. See, I love Leah. I really do. For me, she's actually the hero of the story, and we'll get to that. But the lesson here is that when you get married, no matter how great you think the marriage is going to be, when you get a career, no matter how great you think your job is going to be, when you start to study, no matter how fantastic the study might be, when you start a family, no matter how great your family will be, when you buy a house, when you go on a holiday, whatever it is, if you make it Rachel, in the morning it's going to be Leah. If you put all of your hopes and dreams and your heart's desire on something and you make it God and it isn't God, in the morning it's Leah. See, our search for one true love betrays us and hurts us and maligns us and wrecks us constantly because we're looking for a Rachel when the only thing that exists in this world besides from God is a Leah that we're looking in the wrong place for something to define us. We're looking in the wrong place for something to complete us. See, if you're looking for it to fulfill you like, Rachel, like Jacob did Rachel in the morning, it's always Leah. See, no one says this better, I think, than C.S. Lewis. He says this in his chapter on hope from mere Christianity. We might have it. We don't have it. That's all right. I'll read it to you, and it will be fantastic. C.S. Lewis says this. Most people, if they have really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that what would, sorry, this is why I want it up there because it's very hard to read, would know that they do want and want acutely something which cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of which would be called ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. That spouse may be a good spouse and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and it may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. See, we need to realize, we need to understand that it's always Leia, that it's always gonna be Leia because if you get married, if you have a family, if you go into a job and you say that finally this is gonna fix me, 
Finally, this is going to complete me, which we so often don't realize we're doing until we're halfway through getting angry at the fact that it doesn't. But if we go into this place saying, this will define me, this will complete me, those things will never do what we want them to do. In the morning, it's always layer. And when that happens, there's four things that we can do. Right? One, you can blame the things. You can blame the situation. You can blame the partner. You can blame the job. You can blame the study. And then we try and get new ones. We look for better ones. And we end up in a a never-ending cycle of disappointment. Right? I'll marry her. Oh, no, she wasn't good enough to complete me, I'll marry her. I'll do this job. No, this job had some things I didn't like. I'll change to this job. And we go round in a cycle looking for something to complete us. The second thing we do is you can blame yourself. You can say everyone else is happy. Everyone else seems complete and they're doing similar things to me. So surely the problem must be me. The problem must be that that I'm unfixable, that I'm uncompletable, that I can't be loved or loved properly, and that must be the reason why this hurts so much. That must be the reason why I can't fill this ache. Third, you can blame the world. You can just get cynical and hard. Love doesn't exist. Happiness doesn't exist. No one is ever satisfied in their job or anything in life. Life is just disappointment. That's how it goes. And fourthly, last, we can do what C.S. Lewis says and change the entire focus of our life. See, C.S. Lewis says this, if I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most profitable, the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. See, my third point, my final point, as I get the band up, is what can we do about this ache? What can we do about this longing, this desire, this need to be met, this need to be known, this need to to have love complete us when everything we look to falls short? If we're always looking for Rachel and Rachel in the morning is always Leia, what are we to do? How do How do we find completeness? How do we find happiness? How do we find love? See, the story then leaves Jacob and we see what, what has happened to Leah. Now, who is Leah? Right, Leah is the older daughter and the only detail we are given about her is that there was no sparkle in Leah's eye. Right, basically what we need to know, the point is, is that Leah had to live all of her life in the shadow of a sister who had that sparkle. Right, she was always second. She was always less. She was always judged and valued to be not as good as her sister. She was always just not quite good enough, not quite over the line. And as a result, Laban knew that no one was going to marry her if they could marry Rachel. No one was going to marry her if they could choose her sister instead. And so he wondered how he was going to get a chance to get rid of her, how he was going to, to unload her. And then he saw his chance and he went for it. And now Leah, that Laban, her father, did not want, has been given to a husband who doesn't want her either. Leah is devastatingly the girl that nobody wants. And Leah has an ache in her heart, just like Jacob's. Leah has an ache in her heart, just like yours and and just like mine. And she begins to do what Jacob had done to Rachel and what Isaac had done to Esau. She sets her heart on Jacob. She says, if only I could make my husband love me, then I'd be complete. If only I could be his favorite, if only for a day, then I would mean something. Then I would feel whole. Then the ache would go away. And the, the, last, the last verses here are some of the saddest I've read in the Bible. She uses Hebrew words to express her longing for Jacob. Leah gave birth to her first child, a boy, and she named him Reuben. Reuben means to see. 
And she says to herself, now maybe my husband will see me. Now maybe I won't be invisible anymore. And then she has a second son. And she names him Simeon, which has to do with hearing. And she says to herself, now maybe my husband will finally listen to me. Maybe he'll hear me. Maybe he will notice that I'm here. But he doesn't. And so she has a third child. And she says, now maybe, maybe my, my husband will be attached to me. Her, her third child is named Levi, which means to be attached. And she says to herself, now finally my husband's heart will be attached to me. Now he'll love me. I've given him three sons. I've done what everyone says I should do. I've been a good wife. I've defined myself by this, this, this role I'm meant to play. I provide children. I provide male children to my husband. This is the highest calling that Leah can see in her life. She says, now he'll love me. Now I'll be complete. See, what was she trying to do? She was trying to find her identity through traditional family values. Having sons, especially in those days, was the best way to do that, but it wasn't working. She thought, if I have babies, and if I have sons, and my husband loves me, then finally something will be fixed in my life. Something will go right. And the text, it's sort of like a summary statement, brutally says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Every single day of her life, she saw the man who she longed for in the arms of the one in whose shadow she had lived her entire life. See, every day was another knife in her heart. So what do we learn from this story? What can we learn from this, this tragedy of Leah pursuing love and being broken down? At least Jacob got what he wanted. Here Leah is and she's broken and she's hurt. We need to see what God does in Leah and does for Leah. See, Leah solves the eight, this desire for love and the attempt to meet it with human things in the only way it can be solved, in the only way the ache can be taken away. Look, look first at, at what God does in her. Every time she has a child, she puts all of her hopes in her husband now loving her. The first time she gives birth, she says, now maybe my husband will see me. Then she says, maybe my husband will hear me. Maybe my husband will love me. Finally, it says that she conceived for the fourth time. And when she gave birth to Judah, she says, now I will praise the Lord. No mention of her husband. It's totally different. No mention of her husband, no mention of the child, no change in her situation. Jacob still doesn't love her. Jacob still puts Rachel ahead of her. Her days are still so hard to get through. And yet, Here's what I believe is going on. Jacob and Laban have stolen Leah's life. They've stolen her heart away from her. And, and as a result, Leah has turned to a good thing. Having kids, having a family is a great thing, but she's made it the ultimate thing. She turned it into the ultimate thing and she made it her God. See, in church, we so often talk about idols and we think of them as these, these big things, these nasty things, these horrible things. But so often in life, our idols are just good things that we've made into the ultimate thing. Good things that we've chosen. This will be my God. This will define me. And it's a slow creep. It just happens over time. And before we know it, we're defined by our career. Before we know it, we're defined by our partner, our, our family, our lack of a partner, our abilities, our, 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 our affluence. Before we know it, something other than God is defining us. And in the morning, it's always Leah. In the morning, 
it falls short. And so as a result, when she stops doing that, when she stops making having a family her God and she lets God be God again, she gets her life back. She gets her, her uh, heart back. She finds love in the only place that will remove her ache. And see, my question to you this morning, if you remember nothing else, if the story was just a pretty story, if, if, if it was just words, I want you to remember this. What good thing in your life are you treating as the ultimate thing? What good thing has become God? What do you need to stop giving your heart to if you are actually going to get your life back? And see, I'm certain that everyone in this room has got something. I know that I've got something. I know that sometimes I, I play with what it is. Sometimes it can be my job. Sometimes it can be my family. Sometimes it can be church. But something takes this place of defining me, of being who I am. Do you know what it is? See, in conclusion, we all search for love. We search for love because we are made for love. But we need to be careful that we don't make a good thing God. Because it will always disappoint. In the morning, Rachel will always be Leah. And see, the great thing about this story is this whole time, in the middle of this whole mess, which is because of this messianic line, right? It's because of this, this desire to be the ones who will get to be the forefathers of Jesus, who will get to be the ones who are the forefathers of David the king. This whole mess is caused by this desire. That's what they're really all trying to make replace this whole. That's the thing they're all focusing on. Everything else is a way of getting to it or a supplement for the fact that they can't, right? This desire, this ache, Everyone wants to be the, the progenitor to the king, the forefather to the savior. And this son, this fourth son, Judah, the son Leah has when she changes her focus and makes God, God again, when she finds her need for love met in God, when she realizes that even if she, she could make Jacob love her like she wanted, it wouldn't fill the hole. The, the, the son she has when her ache is met, when she puts her love in the only place that can truly rest. Judah is the founder of the Israelite tribe of Judah. Judah is the inheritor of the Messianic line. Judah is the 37th grandfather of Jesus and the 10th grandfather of King David. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that the thing that started this whole mess, the thing that, that started this, the original true love, the if only I had, lands on Leah's son Judah when she decided to praise God no matter what when she decided to turn her attention to God regardless of her situations, when she let God define her. God chose Leah because he is saying, this is how salvation works. This is the upside down way that I do things. That the first are last and the last are first, that you can't make yourself loved. That you can't complete your life in your own strength. That no matter how good a thing something is, it's not the ultimate thing. And see, you might've walked in here this morning and you were looking for love in all the wrong places. You didn't realize it, but you were trying to fill that ache in something. And it was falling short and you were getting angry at the thing that you were trying to make define you. You were getting angry at your family or you were getting angry at your, your work or you were getting angry at something. And this morning, I know I need to change my focus again. I know I need to choose to put my love, to put my heart in the hands of the only one who can hold it. The only one who's, who's worthy and the only one who's able to give me the love that I need to complete me, to take away the ache. 
But before I pray a prayer with, to do with that, if you're here this morning and you know that you've never asked God into your life, you've never said, man, actually I need a relationship with this, with this God who can complete me, this God who is everything I need, this God who, who doesn't fail, this God who, who doesn't fall short like everything else I've been looking for. I just wanna ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And if that's you here this morning, if you know that you've been looking for love in all the wrong places, that you've taken your eyes off of Jesus or you never put them on Him, that you've been looking in all the wrong places and you need Jesus in your heart. We're here because we're a group of people who have decided to follow Jesus, decided to say, God, I can't let that be God anymore. I can't let me be God. I can't let my relationships, my family, my work, my whatever it is, God, I need you to be God. If you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to let God be God, to let Jesus be your Savior, to let Him take away the sins and the mistakes of the falling short that we all do. Or if you're here and, and once you were following God, once He was your Savior, once you chased after Him, but something distracted you, something else has become God. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 10 years. If you need to realign yourself, we're gonna pray a prayer in just a minute. But if you're here this morning and you know that you wanna pray that prayer, we're all gonna pray it, but you wanna pray it from your heart. You mean it, you need it. You need to redefine who you are by God's love. You wanna choose to follow Him again this morning. If that's you here today, I just want you to raise your hand so we know who's praying this prayer with us and we can support you in your journey. So if that's you this morning, awesome, I see that hand. If that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand now. There's already a few hands going up. I'm just gonna give it a little bit. There's nothing special in you raising your